The offertory today reminded us that he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He's a gentle shepherd who knows you and cares about you. And the hymn that we just sang, I need thee every hour. So there's this personal connection. And we often center on that part of our faith, like God is so there for me to, you know, meet me at my point of need. So I want you to remember that I haven't forgotten that when I preach most of this sermon, because you're going to go like, Pastor Bob, you're saying that God doesn't really care about our everyday life. Hold on. Don't turn me off. Don't leave. Don't turn off your television, okay? Just hold on. But first, before we get there, I want to go in a different direction that's dramatically different. I came up with a sermon title early this, uh, early this week. Your Jesus is too small. And just so you know, your pastor has a bit of a stubborn streak. Almost everywhere I shared that sermon title with others through the week, they said, that's not a good sermon title. And I left it in there anyway. And I I know why they said that, because I borrowed the sermon title from a book, I think it was written in the 1970s by J.B. Phillips, called Your God is Too Small. And when I look at that little paperback book, what J.B. Phillips says in the book is he says, your God is too small, but I'm going to tell you about my God, and he's much better than your God. I mean, he didn't mean to say it that way, but like, I've got the vision of God that you don't have. And so those who responded to my sermon title were saying this week, it kind of sounds like, Pastor Bob, that your Jesus is the right size, and everybody else's Jesus is too small. So let me just say right from the beginning, my Jesus is too small as well. Everybody's Jesus is too small, and I'm going to prove it to you uh, with this sermon, okay? So that's my, that's my task for today. So let me start with, uh, I mean, I already started, but let, let me go on with this point here. I want you to, to, just for a moment, other than the resurrection of Jesus, I want you to think of the greatest miracle in the Gospels. Now, if it weren't for this whole COVID thing, and I'm not, you know, supposed to interact with you, I'd literally bring a microphone around right now, but I can't do that. So I just want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to tell your neighbor what is the greatest miracle of Jesus other than the resurrection. So turn to your neighbor and tell them that. you got 15 seconds, so come up quick. What's yours? What? Lazarus? Fantastic. So I don't think it was related to this sermon, but my colleague Kevin Watkins went through the office this week and and asked everybody, what's your favorite miracle of Jesus? And because I was thinking about this sermon, I immediately said walking on the water. So let, let me make a statement here and we'll see if we can back it up here. Think with me for a moment. Whatever your miracle was, when the Apostle Paul wrote like half the New Testament, he never mentioned it. The reason he didn't mention it is because when you limit your understanding of what Jesus can do by the miracles recorded in the gospel, your Jesus is too small. So if you say, well, my Jesus, he can walk on water. Yeah, true. He can say his ABCs too. Like, your Jesus is too small. My Jesus can turn water into wine. Yeah, that's really cool. But if that's how you think of Jesus, your Jesus is too small. My Jesus can solve my everyday problems. He can heal people. He can, you know, help me with my test at school. He can find me a job. I pray for people to help me, you know, meet my financial challenges. If that's your vision of Jesus, and that's all your vision of Jesus, 
that he can meet you because you need him every hour, your Jesus is too small. The Apostle Paul never, ever refers, that I can remember, to any of the miracles of Jesus except the resurrection. Why? Because he doesn't want your Jesus to be limited by what you read only in the Gospels. So let's talk about that for a minute. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. We began last week in the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, and he starts out, Paul does, with this amazing run-on sentence. Do you know what your spiritual blessings are in Christ? He chose you. He adopted you. He predestined you before the foundation of the world. He forgave you. He gave you grace. He has given you a down payment on your inheritance forever with him in the Holy Spirit. These are your spiritual blessings in Christ. And so now Paul links that in verse 15 by saying, for this reason, this reason being all that he has done for you, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks and praying for you. So let's pause there. Your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. There's actually an interesting thing that maybe isn't interesting to anybody, but, you know, we preach, uh, us preacher types. But the, word your, the words your love is actually not in the best ancient manuscripts. So we can actually uh, translate this, the next slide, for this reason, ever since I heard about your loyalty to the Lord Jesus and to all God's people. If the word your love is missing there, it means your faith in the Lord Jesus and in all God's people. And the reason that people changed that early on is because they thought, well, how can you have faith in God's people? And I want to say this is what Paul is lifting up as a quality of the readers who are, to whom he is writing. He's saying, ever since I heard about the fact that you are faithful to Jesus and you're faithful to other people, you trust Jesus and you trust other people. So in other words, he's saying, like, you, you get it, right? You're part of an entire community who has received these spiritual blessings, and I've heard about that, and I can't stop thanking God for you. I can't stop remembering you in my prayers. So then what does Paul pray for them? Verse 17. This is our key verse. So you're going to read it with me a couple of times here. Let's start now. Read it from the screen. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. First of all, notice that Paul uh, names each member of the Holy Trinity. When you pray, do you pray to God, the Father, or to Jesus, his Son, or to the Holy Spirit? Paul wants you to know that all persons of the Trinity are involved in your prayer. So it doesn't, like, you don't have to get it right. Somebody asked me last week, is it okay if we pray to the Holy Spirit? It's not like Jesus is saying, why'd you ignore me? You're talking to the Holy Spirit. There's no territorial thing with God, right? So just talk to God and don't worry too much about the details. But every time you're praying, you are praying to a God who created everything, to Jesus, his eternal son, because of what Jesus has done for you and through the work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul in integrates that into his prayer. And the reason for that is when God, or before God ever created a single human being or the earth itself, 
God was in relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the reason he created us is so that we could share in that intimacy that God himself knows. So he creates a human being, and then he divides the human being into male and female, and he says, I want you to experience on earth what I know in eternity, the wonder of knowing and being known, of loving and being loved. And so when we pray, we talk to this one who knows what it's like to be in eternal relationship. But what does he ask God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to do for the Ephesians? He asks that God would help them to know him better. So know is this powerful word of relationship from Genesis to Revelation that indicates how we're created and why we're created, to know God and to know one another. So this is the bottom line of his prayer. And if your Jesus is too small, everybody's is, yours is, and mine is, Paul says, I want you to know him better. I I want some improvement in your awareness of who he is. So one more time, read this verse with me. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, beginning in verse 18, he unpacks some details of what he wants you to know about God. So there's the idea of knowledge, like I want you to know God in a relationship, but there's also this idea of uh, sort of a head faith, knowing about God. What does he want you to know about him? He wants you to know hope and riches and power. This is past, present, and future. So hope sounds like a future word, but he says this is the hope to which you've already been called. I want you to grasp that you have already been called into this hope. Second, he says, I want you to know the riches of your glorious inheritance. That's the future. I want you to know what's coming for you and that there's nothing on earth that can parallel what God has in store for you. And then he says, right now, for you who are believing, I want you to know his incomparably great power. So again, all three of these ideas are powerful for us in terms of our daily lives. Yesterday, I met the family of Doug Eller out here in our memorial garden, and we interred the ashes of a man who died way too young. In that inconsolable, in that otherwise inconsolable and perpetual agony, how can we go forward as believers? Because of the hope that God has called us into an eternal relationship. I hear on a weekly basis from members and non-members who struggle to pay their bills. Why do we not distinguish in the church family between those who, are, who have little, those who have much? It's because the benefits package waiting for all who are in Christ is out of this world. And there's no difference. Like, you don't get a better place in heaven because you had a better place on earth. It actually is kind of the opposite. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And so the Apostle Paul says, I want you to know the riches of your glorious inheritance that is awaiting you all through eternity. And then why do we not despair over the rise and fall of nations and elections and politicians and protests? Because there is an incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, what does that power accomplish? If if God has given power to those of us who believe, what can we get out of it? Can we get like a new Lamborghini? Can we prevent an early death by, you know, tapping into this power? Can we use it to pay a bill? 
And Paul will tell us that this great power that's available to us is better than any of that. But meanwhile, he takes this idea of power in a slightly different direction. No, in a bigly different direction. In verse 19, so he says, this is his incomparably great power for us who believe, and he goes on to say that energy, the NIV uses the same word power, but it should be a different word, that energy is the same as the mighty strength. Now, all I want you to see right now is that there are four different words for power in this verse, and they are in the original as well. Uh, one commentator says Paul is just stacking up power terms. So wh what do you think of when you think of great power? What does power mean to you? I'm not going to go into all of the, you know, original language words behind this, except to illustrate them a little bit. So think back to the end of World War II. Power, the word Paul uses, is potential strength. So that's what was inside the Enola Gay, the plane that carried the, atom the first atomic bomb. That's power, but it's potential power. Nothing's happened with that yet. When the bomb explodes, that's Paul's second word. That's energy. That is unleashed power. The third word that Paul uses might be illustrated when General Douglas MacArthur is there at the table signing unconditional surrender from the Japanese, from the enemy. That's dominance. We won, and we're now in charge, and if you don't sign this for unconditional surrender, then more bad stuff is going to happen, right? So when you're, when you're that much in control, that's the third word that Paul uses, dominance. And then the fourth word that he uses is irresistible force. So that is, at least in the decades following World War II, unparalleled American military might. So if you can imagine all of these words together, Paul is deliberately saying, do you realize that this kind of incomparably great power is toward us who believe? And then he goes on to say that this energy is the same as the mighty strength, okay? So all of this is working together toward a goal here, and you're going like, what's he going to say next? That I can vanquish all of my enemies like we did in World War II? That'd be so cool. Just name an enemy. I've got God's power on my side. No, Paul's illustration is this is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Now, I need you to pause here for just a moment. In fact, I want you to close your eyes for just a minute. And I want you to uh, bring up whatever your visualization is of Good Friday. When there's a cross, and on that cross is a bloodied, punctured, naked corpse that has beat, been beaten and scourged beyond recognition almost and is suspended between heaven and earth in humiliation. That all of the powers of this world centered in Jerusalem at that time said, this is what we do to people who claim power and authority but really don't have any. And there's nobody left to honor him except for a handful of women and a couple of their allies who are not the 12 in whom he had invested his three years. And they take him down from that cross and they shutter his eyes that have been frozen in death. 
and they wrap him up in cloths with only a little time to spare because the Sabbath is coming at six o'clock. And they feel his stiffening body as they place those decomposing parts into a stone cave and seal it up. Okay, you got that visualization in your mind? Now here's what I want you to do with that. It required more power, more energy, more might, more strength to bring Jesus back from the dead than it did for America to win World War II. This is what Paul is saying here. He's saying this is the power that fought all of the forces of death that had dominated human civilization and still does today, for which we have great fear. Every person dies physically, right? And even all of hell was allied against Sunday morning. And God's power raised Jesus from the dead. Now, that's only one, that's only the first aspect of what God did in Christ. Look at the next verse, I mean the next part of that verse, which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. You say, why is that a big deal? A little trivia question here for you. Do you know what is the most commonly quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament? You might think it's Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, or Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, or maybe the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Those are all verses that we know well. The most commonly quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament, and it's quoted from Matthew to Revelation, more often than anything else in the Old Testament, is a Psalm of David, Psalm 110, where David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand. And the New Testament, Jesus actually engages in this debate with the religious leaders, and the New Testament says, this is who Jesus is. He's somebody that even David, who's the greatest figure in the Old Testament, would call Lord. And who would call him Lord if you're David, right? So Jesus drops a hint of who he really is, and the Apostle Paul, and Peter, and John, all through the rest of the New Testament, and Peter go back to that, and they say, you know who this is? This is not only one that God used his power to raise from the dead, this is one who is seated at the right hand of God which in biblical language and understanding means that he shares the absolute power of God. So God didn't just place him, God replaced him at his place of honor and power and privilege to rule all of the universe, which is where Paul goes in verse 21. When he's seated there, he is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is to be named. Now, I could do the same thing. Like, I could tell you all the difference in these words. Some of them are even parallel with the words we've already used. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to remind you that in the Roman Empire of Paul's time, there were two powers that people feared, and one was a very visible power. It was the power of the Roman Empire. 
And they believed that the Roman Empire was eternal. And in fact, he would go on for a number of centuries. They believed they had a political system that was absolutely stable, that would never be undone, and a military machine that could never be conquered. Uh, it, more recently, an archaeological dig in the city of Ephesus discovered a graffiti that said this, Rome, the rule of all, your power will never die. So I don't know how you think of like the stability of America and our military might, but I'm telling you, it was even more so in the Roman Empire. This is never going away. We are all powerful and always will be. And there was another uh, sort of set of powers that the average person feared and honored, and that was the invisible power. So think of all those Greek gods that you learned about. Like there's a battle going on among, you know, the, the gods, and some of them are for us, and some of them are against us, but there are these invisible powers, and we can't make them mad either. So people engaged in magic and all kinds of incantation to make the gods happy, to make the invisible forces happy. And when Paul says that God has seated Christ above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be named, that's what he's talking about. He's saying everything visible and invisible, Jesus is in charge of them. And then he goes on by closing uh, our section, our chapter, and saying that God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. We're going to get to a lot more about the church in Ephesians, because he's in charge of it, okay? So, He's not too worried that we've had a pandemic and people don't come to church like they used to. He's just not too worried about the church. He's in charge of it. He's not too worried about that your pastor has gray hair and you know he's going to retire sometime before he gets to be 95 years old. He's not worried about that, right? He's just not. He's not worried about Corinth. He's not worried about the church. He's the head over all of it and it's all under his feet because the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now just pause there for a moment, because that's where I'm going as I close this up. Jesus fills everything in every way. Is your Jesus that big? Because if your Jesus isn't that big, he's too small. So if your Jesus is like, my Jesus can storm a still, excuse me, can still a storm, he's that powerful. My Jesus has such authority that he can speak the golden rule and what wisdom that is. I'm just telling you, Paul never talks about the golden rule and he never talks about Jesus stilling a storm. Never does that. He says Jesus fills everything in every way. So if you say, well, I think Jesus is really powerful because he can heal lepers. Paul's going like, yeah, I can tie his shoes too. It's just like that's toddler stuff to Jesus. Do you get the one who fills everything in every way? So let me illustrate this in a way that I do with my confirmation class. So you think you're in a pretty big building, right? I mean, this is like a grand church building. How magnificent this is. So look at it from the perspective of Google Earth, and it doesn't look very big anymore, does it? Like, it's not even the biggest building within a mile of here. There are a number of buildings that are bigger than Corinth Church is. So now we're going to back up our lens a little bit more, and we're going to look at the map of the globe. And did you see where I put the dot that represents Hickory, North Carolina? No, because it's too small for the map, right? So our 30 square miles, they are nothing when you compare it to the entire globe, right? Now let's look at our grand and glorious globe, our Earth, from the perspective of the outer edges of our solar system. 
Several decades ago, NASA sent us a, a, a space probe called the Voyager, and when it got out to the outer edges of our solar system, it, it, it um, pointed the camera back and took a picture of Earth. That's the whole Earth from the edge of the solar system. And you say, well, yeah, our solar system's pretty big then, isn't it? Yeah, well, our solar system is one little dot of a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So you can't even find our solar system if you could take a picture of the Milky Way galaxy. It's too tiny. It's, it's hickory. It's smaller than hickory on the global map. Yeah, well, our, our, our solar system's pretty big, right? No. Scientists now estimate, astronomers estimate, there are two trillion galaxies in the universe. That's your Jesus. He fills everything in every way. And you go like, well, he hears and answers my prayer and he solves my problem. Your Jesus is too small. He can walk on water. Your Jesus is too small. So you say, well, Pastor Bob, are you saying that Jesus doesn't care about my stuff? That he's too big, he's too busy to care about my stuff? No, that's the best news of all. Do you realize that this Jesus who fills everything in every way knows you by name? Every tear that rolls down your cheek, he knows about it. He grieves with you. Every cry of your newborn baby, he hears it. Every problem that you face, every unseen obstacle, every insurmountable problem, Jesus is there walking with you. Paul's not saying to diminish who you are. He's just saying, don't forget that this Jesus is so much bigger. And precisely because Jesus is so big, your life is never too small to count for him. Now, there's really even better news next week in Ephesians chapter 2. Because honestly, all Paul is doing is setting you up for the next chapter. Because what Jesus has done for you is even better than solving your current problems, even better than healing somebody of cancer, even better than giving you a new baby, even better than, you know, meeting your, paying your bills this week. What Jesus has done is so much better than that. But you've got to come back next week for that. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us when we so limit who you are and think that the best things, the most powerful things you can do are things for us. You fill everything in every way, and all of the galaxies belong to you and are in your control. You created them. What is human being? What is a human being that you would visit each one of us, that you would know us, that you would care about us? And yet you do. You are the one who has called us and adopted us and predestined us to share glory with you and given us your Holy Spirit as a down payment. Today, we just want to stand in awe of you and worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for who you are and what you've done on our behalf. May you give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. 
For we ask in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.